Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, more troubles for Justin Trudeau as Jane Philpott resigns from Cabinet following allegations of political interference in the SNC-Lavalin case. The deputy OPP commissioner who expressed concern over the hiring of Ron Tavener also got fired. And uh, the OSPCA has told the Ontario government that they will no longer enforce and investigate animal cruelty laws. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another uh, problem with going on with Ottawa, of course, uh, this all started with the SNC-Lavalin situation and the possibility of uh, political interference in, the, in a legal court decision. And uh, that led to the reg- resignation eventually, of course, of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, from her cabinet post. She was obviously demoted from the attorney general's role. Uh, we assume, or she says anyway, because she wouldn't play ball with some of the power brokers there. Well, yesterday, the other shoe dropped. Jane Philpott resigned from cabinet, uh, declaring a lack of confidence in uh, the government following allegations of political interference in that SNC-Lavalin case. Joining us to talk about this is Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and adjunct professor at, at the University of Ottawa. Morning, Duff. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing fine. This is, uh, this is uh, getting a little more uh, intense, I guess, with the resignation of, of Jane Philpott, who uh, coincidentally is a good friend of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. So I guess they've known each other for quite some time. Uh, what do we read into this? I mean, depending on whose uh, op-ed piece you want to pick up today, the government is crumbling, our institutions are crumbling, uh, some are suggesting there's nothing to see here. Uh, where are we on this stuff? Well, there's definitely something to see when you have two ministers resign. Um, some had tried to spread the uh, <clears throat> the view that um, Jody Wilson-Raybould was miffed from being switched from Attorney General to Veterans Affairs and that this was all sour grapes trying to get back at Trudeau, but it's very difficult to say that about Jane Philpott. Um, and uh, she was a senior minister and handed very important portfolios by Trudeau, and and she's written a letter that includes the line, there can be a cost acting on one's principles, but there's a bigger cost to abandoning them, which is a pretty devastating thing to say about your prime minister, and, and to say that... Um, that she uh, has a loss of confidence, uh, given the government's handling of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. So it's, uh, it is a, a hit, definitely, against the government. And um, Trudeau is trying to say, well, you know, you have disagreements, and that's a democracy, and we actually encourage those kind of disagreements and discussions. But I'm sure he's reeling to see uh, one of his senior and most competent ministers resign. And, and call out uh, himself on ethics. Well, let's talk about ethics, and, and let's talk about the legal side of this. You teach law, of course. Uh, I, I want to try to, if we could, wade through the political bombast here of uh, calling for resignations, etc. What What are the ramifications of what's going on? I, I, we can tell you this much. Uh, you know, cabinet resignations are not necessarily fatal to governments. It's happened, I asked Theresa May about that over in the U.K. right now. Uh, I'm sure sometimes she walks into a cabinet room and wonders if anybody else is going to show up, but she's still in government and still in power for the time being anyway. But but there, but there are legal implications to what's going on here, are there not? Very much so. Um, the first thing is Democracy Watch is calling in a second letter to the Ethics Commissioner. We filed the first letter on February 8th when this whole story broke. And we're calling on the Ethics Commissioner to ensure an expanded investigation into the actions of everyone who was named by Jody Wilson-Raybould last uh, Wednesday in her testimony before the Justice Committee. Uh, Because the initial story from the Globe and Mail was that it was people in the Prime Minister's office that had pressured her, and 
he named others in the finance minister and some of his staff, uh, the clerk of the Privy Council as well. And so she named 11 people, and DeMar Swatch is calling on the Ethics Commissioner to ensure that all of them are investigated for violating this rule in the federal ethics law, which says you can't try to uh, attempt to influence another person's decisions in a way that improperly furthers a person or a company's interests. And the issue here is that they were trying to influence uh, the former Attorney General's decision to step in and protect SNC-Lavalin's interests of not being prosecuted. So um, if, if, I mean, Jody Wilson-Raybould has disclosed that there were emails and texts so it's not just a he said, she said situation anymore. There's actually a written record there, and the ethics commissioner should ensure, not that the ethics commissioner should do it because he was handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet, but that there is a fully independent and full investigation of all those communications of all the people involved, and anyone who did pressure her violated the federal ethics law. Who do you reach out to then, Duff? I mean, you're absolutely right. You want to make this as arm's length as possible, maybe two arm's length, I guess. And it's, that's pretty hard to do in yeah, that, uh, that culture arm, in Ottawa. Yeah, if you're an arm's length away, you can still be grabbed and shaken yeah. by someone, as I always like to say. So it's not far enough away. And the Ethics Commission was handpicked through a very secretive process where the uh, Liberals lied to the opposition party members. Uh, leaders said they couldn't find anybody and had to reopen the process, and they reopened it and found this guy. And this guy, the Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion, had a record of eight unethical actions, including be found, being found guilty of violating whistleblower rights twice by the federal court when he was Integrity Commissioner. So this is the guy we have as Ethics Commissioner, handpicked by the Trudeau Cabinet, and Democracy Watch's position is that there's an appearance of bias on his part because he was handpicked through such a questionable process. And he should refer it on to a provincial ethics commissioner who has no ties to any federal party or the federal government. And then we have more assurance of an independent and full investigation and a ruling that will actually uh, stand scrutiny from people. And we're very worried about Mario Dion covering this up because when he was integrity commissioner, he didn't fully investigate 140 complaints from whistleblowers. He buried them. So this guy has a very questionable record. Uh, he is the enforcer of the federal ethics law, but he also can delegate his enforcement powers to anyone else. And provincial ethics commissioners, like the Alberta ethics commissioner one time, faced a situation where someone involved in, in uh, the complaint was a friend of hers, and so she referred it on to the BC ethics commissioner because she didn't want to have the appearance of bias taint the investigation and the ruling, and that's what he should do as well. And we've seen this happen, you know, I guess on a micro level. I mean, you know, if there's something, for instance, untoward with a police service, uh, they usually ask for a police service outside of that jurisdiction to do the investigation or an independent body. Uh, exactly. Are those discussions ongoing in Ottawa right now? I mean, somebody's got to be able to try to determine which way they're going to go here. I mean, we've got to get some clarity on this. Even the Prime well, Minister admitted yesterday that, look, there are a lot more questions that need to be answered here. Yes, well, if the Ethics Commissioner doesn't, refer it on and um, then issues a ruling that ignores the facts of the law, then Democracy Watch will be challenging that ruling in court. So we'll see what he does. Um, the RCMP, the new commissioner of the RCMP, was actually selected by a much better process. Uh, and uh, she was actually selected by a committee. Seven of the ten members of the committee are not from the government. 
and you compare that to how the ethics commissioner was selected, every single member of of the committee that selected him are people that serve at the pleasure of the prime minister and the cabinet. So uh, why the liberals use this one process to choose the RCMP commissioner that was you know far more independent from cabinet than the process they used for the ethics commissioner? That's a question for them to answer. Uh, but we have, with this commissioner of the RCMP, someone who has been selected in a more independent way, and that should give more confidence to people that the RCMP will be investigating uh, in a more independent way and making decisions that are more independent. The RCMP has their own lawyers, and they also consult with Crown Counsel. In this case, they should consult with prosecutors who are not federal prosecutors, but who are, again, prosecutors at the provincial level in Ontario. Uh, and that, again, also would give a measure of independence to the decision-making. And there should be a full public written explanation of uh, a decision by the RCMP and prosecutors if they decide not to prosecute anyone in this situation for obstruction of justice. Because several lawyers who are experienced with criminal law have spoken out and said that, that this could easily be decided to cross the line in, into breaking the criminal code rule uh, that prohibits obstruction of justice. And uh, Democracy Watch's position is, if that's the case, there should be a prosecution and the court should decide whether the line was crossed because it's such an unprecedented situation. How do you how do you make that determination? And, and again, we're going back to this whole idea about independent investigations. Uh, and, and we've heard that sort of talk before, but invariably the politicians seem to want to get their hands in that in some way, shape, or form and say, okay, but we'll set the parameters. And we, we saw that happen with the Harper government when they were going after the, the, the Carl Hans Schreiber stuff. And I mean, you know, they, David Johnson, a very respected guy, was put in charge of that whole thing, but, but he had certain parameters, and there were certain things they said, don't open that door. Uh, That's right. Is, is that going to serve any purpose at all? Well, the NDP are calling for that kind of public inquiry into the situation. And what the point I've been making is Trudeau would choose the commissioner or commissioners for the inquiry and also set the terms of the inquiry. And as you mentioned, Harper, under pressure, did set up an inquiry into Carl Heinz Schreiber and Brian Mulroney, but Mulroney was his mentor. And his self-declared public, publicly, Harper and Mulroney both said they're friends. And so what did Harper do? He protected his friend by saying that the inquiry can't look at the Airbus affair, which was the real heart of the matter with yep. Carl Heinz Schreiber. And then, uh, and then um, Harper chose the inquiry commissioner. He never should have been allowed to make that decision. He was in a conflict of interest. Uh, and we filed an, a complaint with the ethics commissioner, who Harper had also chosen. And not surprisingly, she said, there's nothing here, and made it all go away for Harper. So... A public inquiry doesn't get you an independent look at it because the prime minister chooses the commissioners and sets the scope of the inquiry. Um, with the uh, RCMP, again, the commissioner has been chosen uh, in a more independent way. But, again, a public written explanation needs to be issued if there's a decision not to prosecute. You know, we still don't know why Nigel Wright, uh, Stephen Harper's right-hand man, was not prosecuted when Mike Duffy was prosecuted for taking a bribe from Nigel Wright. Well, why wasn't Nigel Wright prosecuted for giving the bribe? There's never been a public explanation of that, and the public has a right to know why that decision was made. Uh, some have said, well, we should have a special prosecutor. Well, guess who chooses the special prosecutor? The current Attorney General, who has expressed loyalty to Trudeau. So, again, you don't get independent investigations through the special prosecutor system. We have a serious problem with independent investigations, I think our best hope is the RCMP, 
but they can't act secretly. Uh, five former attorney generals have written to them, four of them conservative and one NDP, attorney generals from the federal and, and provincial levels. Obviously, they have an agenda because the liberals are the ones in trouble. Um, we need independent investigations in this and full public explanations why people are not charged or not found guilty. And uh, hopefully we'll get that from the RCMP and we'll get an independent investigation assured by the ethics commissioner and uh, we'll get to the bottom of it. Because the Justice Committee is not going to get to the bottom of it, in part because it's full of partisan MPs who are sniping at each other based on not the facts and the evidence, but based on the fact that they come from one party or another. Well, and we saw that last week with uh, Wilson Raybould's testimony. Aside from yeah, the, un- uh, the unusual thing with the committee was the liberals were attacking a liberal, yeah. and the opposition party members were defending the liberal. That's an unusual dynamic, but again, making decisions based on partisan lines and and protecting their leaders and advancing the agenda of their party. I, I want to get your read on something else. We've got a minute or so left here, Duff. Uh, one of the subplots of this whole thing now is the discussion about separation of the, those roles of justice minister and attorney general, and, and maybe that's a discussion that we need to have. Uh, but but there's a clear distinction here that uh, that people seem to ride roughshod over, and uh, we saw this obviously manifest itself with the Wilson-Raybould situation, uh, which begs the question, if it's been going on like this for years and years, why haven't we had another blow-up similar to this? Or has, has that slash justice minister AG simply acquiesced to government policy in the past? Well, uh, the Attorney General before 2007 at the federal level did handle prosecutions. So there was never any pressure needed. They could just do it. And if they were pressured, probably it did happen in the past to let off a friend of the Prime Minister or some company that donated a lot of money, and the Attorney General just went along with it. You know, we'll just never know that history unless former Attorney Generals actually blow the whistle on themselves, really, because they should have reported it publicly if it ever happened. and that's uh, across the country the same. Only B.C., Nova Scotia, and Quebec have a, a director of public prosecutions who's separate from the attorney general. In every other province, including Ontario, the attorney general does intervene in prosecutions, and there is political influence over prosecutions, and uh, or at least the appearance of it. And we just don't know whether it's going on, and it's a bad system. It needs to be cleaned up. Uh, we've learned as well through this, Jody Wilson-Raybould pushed back on the appointments of judges and how much the P- Prime Minister's office was intervening in the appointment of judges. Um, that's the same across the country, except Ontario has a good system with an independent committee. But we have political influence in law enforcement in every way across the country. Ontario facing a very big example right now with Doug Ford trying to appoint his close friend as the head of the OPP. Yeah. None of this stuff should be allowed. Uh, and the the minister, deputy minister, shouldn't be making decisions about firing someone at the OPP, as happened yesterday as well with the firing of Deputy Commissioner Bill Blair. This is all political tainting of law enforcement. And law enforcement is supposed to be based on the facts and the evidence, not on political partisan interests of the party or a premier or a prime minister. Well, we've got blurred lines right now, and that's not helping. Duff, Indeed, thank- we got to clean it all up. Yeah, Duff, thanks as always. A little short on time. I do appreciate your perspective on this. Duff Conacher, of course, that co-founder of Democracy Watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we continue to monitor what's going on in Ottawa, of course, with the uh, SNC-Lavalin situation. Uh, Jerry Butts, uh, the former uh, chief of staff for the prime minister who resigned over this whole issue uh, a week or so ago now, is actually going to be testifying tomorrow. Not quite sure, and he wanted to. It was not as if they said, "Hey, you got to get in here." But uh, I don't, I don't know what he's going to have to say. It's 
probably just throwing gasoline out of the fire, but we'll watch that testimony. But here in Ontario, well, I guess Ottawa is technically in Ontario, but I mean more specifically Queen's Park, uh, we are not without controversy here either. Yesterday, the deputy OPP commissioner, uh, one Brad Blair, who of course has been very critical of the hiring process for the new OPP commissioner, and actually is the one that leaked the details about Rob Ford wanting to get a, a customized van from the OPP and to hide the cost. Well, he got fired yesterday. Not surprising, I guess, considering uh, the uh, the uh, uh, stuff that he said about the, the Premier's office and about the process uh, and about the Premier's choice to be the to OPP commissioner. However, yesterday, as just heard on CHML News, yesterday Doug Ford says there was no political interference at all in the decision to fire Brad Blair. Nothing at all. He said nothing to do with it. None of his ministers had anything to do with it either. You can take that for what it's worth. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park for many, many years. Uh, Badger, this is uh, another one of these things that just seems to get curiouser and curiouser with every passing day. You got that right, Bill. Um, Let's remember and uh, remind the listeners that this all started, this whole controversy started because the premier wanted an oversized van, the OPP to buy an oversized van, van and retrofitted with all kinds of goodies on it, TV, reclining chairs, swivel chairs, desks, and the whole works. <clears throat> and he, he made his proposal to then-Commissioner Hawks, Vince Hawks, and Vince balked at it, and subsequently was told, well, maybe, maybe the next commissioner will approve it. Well, it doesn't, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, Vince Hawk saw the writing in the wall, and he tendered his resignation. He went to a very good job after that. But anyway, and, and, and then it's just spun out of control since then. There was so, a staffing issue, too, though, wasn't there? That, that Ford oh, wanted no, to no, handpick his detail? Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I for, forgot that. I keep forgetting that. He wanted to also handpick his OPP security detail. And again, Hawks balked at it. And so this, this set a whole number of things in motion. And it, it just, to, just to unpack it for a second, you know, okay, Hawks is gone. Next thing we know, they're looking for a replacement, and and they the uh, prospectus was you know the uh, conditions where you had to be you had to be a deputy commissioner or a chief of police. That's about the only people that could apply for this. That's how senior it is. You know we're talking about a force of eight thousand people, and, and so you know so they did that, and and then lo and behold, not long after the whole process started. They reduced it to superintendent, the qualifications. So This was just days after they posted oh, the job. Days, days after. Not like a week, but a couple of days. Yeah, days after, and then the next thing we know, <clears throat> his longtime friend, Ron Tavener, who's the superintendent with the uh, Toronto uh, Police Service, was named the commissioner. Man, 72 years old. Fine. And Bill Blair, the chap that you just referred to earlier, uh, Bill Blair is a deputy commissioner, he also applied for that job, you know, qualified guy, didn't get it, and 
he thought, well, this whole thing stinks. And I'm not putting too many words in his mouth when I say that. So he started a bit of a jihad against the, the whole the whole production, and 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 he launched a lawsuit demanding that the ombudsman look into this whole mess. And that's what's before the courts now. And the Integrity Commission, meanwhile, is investigating it to to see what actually happened and whether it was uh, straight up or not. So there's been this tug-of-war back and forth between Ford and Blair. Blair. Ford says it's just sour grapes on Blair's part. Blair says it's a matter of professionalism. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, Mario Di Tommaso, who was the superintendent's Tavner's boss at the Toronto Police Service, was named shortly after Ford got in the new uh, deputy minister of, of safety, which is what the OPP report, report to. And guess who recommended just days ago that, uh, that, that Blair be fired? D. Tommaso. Well, not only that, but if I recall, uh, Badger, was not D. Tommaso, was on, he was on the selection committee for the new chief. He was on the selection committee, and and uh, and also uh, Dean French, the chief of staff for the uh, premier, was said to have had involvement in that selection committee as so, well. So, okay, let's just hold up right there for a second. So yeah. you've got Dean French, who's bo- appointed one of Fr- Bar Ford's friends. You got D. Tomaso, Mayor D. Tomaso, also on the selection committee, who's a political appointee from Ford. Yet Ford maintains there was no political interference in the process. That's right. Um, In other words, I'm putting my two guys on the selection committee to select the guy that I want to be the new commissioner, but there's no political interference. And changing the qualifications. Yeah. And we're supposed to to believe that there was no political interference at all in this. Yeah, and he's been fired, uh, and and it was agreed to by the uh, Public Service Commission, but it, it was D. Tommaso who recommended that Blair be fired, and they're basing all this on, <laughs> excuse me, court documents that were filed as part of his lawsuit, <clears throat> in which, uh, in which he talks about, you know, he spills the beans on the, the whole thing about the tricked-out van, and also some comments that Ford is alleged to have made, and were were put down in the notes of a of a, a police officer who was part of his security at the time where he went on a rant about how this whole thing about, you know, the van and the security uh, details, and and he was going to get his way and, and use some colorful language and that. So that's why that's they're pinning their reason for firing Blair on the fact that he, they say, uh, broke the rules of the uh, Police Act by releasing this information, this private email, re- with respect to the to uh, Ford's behavior. Well, listen, we're having this discussion, obviously, about the federal situation with SNC-Lavalin and political interference uh, in, in, a, in a legal proceeding. 
Uh, you've been doing this for Queens Parkhead for our, and for Parliament Hill for the longest time. Give us your read on uh, just how deeply the, the Ford government seems to have their their tentacles involved in this whole process here, and, and whether that they've crossed an ethical line. I mean, I understand that he said he was going to bring transparency and get rid of the cronyism, and I, that, that was a topic of my commentary at 810 this morning, is you start checking off the boxes of uh, not just Ron Tavener, but a whole bunch of other people that have got nice lush appointments with nice big salaries right now, too. And it just seems as if he's replaced liberal cronies with his own PC cronies now. They let's, that's that's different because it's them doing it now. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that That's that's what I'm saying. No, this, I mean, I don't even have to editorialize. You just have to look at what's happened and figure out for yourself. You know, and the listeners just figure out, does it? Did is, is this political interference? Well, I don't know, boy. You, if it if it isn't, <laughs> I don't know what is. And and listen, there's an element to this that I I think people need to be reminded of is that the OPP is supposed to be an independent body. They don't count out of the government of the day. And and we saw a, a shining example of that with the gas plant uh, investigation that went on, and, and even, I guess, to a lesser extent, the, the, the Sudbury by-election where they, they were supposed to investigate that. Uh, you can't have a, a police service investigate a government if they're beholden to the government. I mean... Can you imagine if, if something untoward were to happen uh, with the Ford government and, and there's a call for a, a police investigation, and if, if his buddy Ron Tavener is running the organization, you know, what's that look like? I mean, th- there's obviously a conflict of interest there. Well, it begs all kinds of questions. I would agree with you there. And meanwhile, the OPP doesn't have a commissioner. He has an acting commissioner, Couture, but that who's due to retire. And... Uh, I mean, the the place is, I won't say rudderless, but darn near. I mean, we've got, you know, they've got, at the OPP, you need a boss, and that's the commissioner. And basically, we have a part-time commissioner now, and then we've got a, another deputy commissioner who's been fired. And it, it it just really raises all kinds of red flags, I would say. Well, and I've heard... And I'm sure you have too. Over the last little while, from some rank and file members of the OPP, and they're they're very concerned about uh, the status at, in, within the, the the police service right now, the OPP, uh, because of that, because of the lack of leadership and the fact that it keeps keeps changing from time to time, and they don't know who's calling who and who's calling the shots in situations like this. That's not good for any police service to be in a circumstance like this. They need some stability. They need some strong leadership, and it, it just seems as if this is a political plaything for the government. Well, at this point, I, I think they're they're willing to take anybody. No, I shouldn't say that, but you know, e- even Tavner, uh, as long as somebody's taking the reins of this, you know, this is one of the biggest police forces in North America. Well, the and the other element nobody to, running the joint. The other element to this too, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, that obviously because of some of the the questions that have been uh, raised about the the hiring process with Tavner. Uh, that that appointment's been put on hold. It's been delayed, obviously, uh, until the integrity commissioner actually files a report on this. But on the other side, if, to get back into your ethical per- perspective on this, uh, the premier's already said that no matter what the integrity commissioner comes up with, he's going to hire the guy anyway. Well, he—I don't think he said that. I thought Sylvia uh, Jones. Sylvia Jones. Yeah, the safety commissioner, minister of safety, uh, said that. I don't know that Ford has said that. 
And, <clears throat> well, that's a whole dilemma in itself. Okay, the integrity, if let's say the integrity commissioner comes out and said, this process was flawed, it was rigged, and they go ahead anyway. I mean, what does that what does that tell you? I mean, this is hypothetical, obviously, but well, if they did, I mean, I, it, I I've never seen anything like it. If that happens, so, that would be new ground for for sure. So where do we go on this? I mean, this this soap opera continues uh, with this latest idea here about Brad Blair, Blair getting fired. Uh, and I guess he, he must have known it was coming at some point. I mean, when you speak up like that, I guess there's going to be some sort oh, of a, yeah, a ramification to this. But but there's no denial of what he actually said. They may have been upset that he's leaked the, this information, but the information is legit, uh, and they've tried to downplay it. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the premier, when the story broke, said, oh, come on, I was just asking for some old secondhand van that they could give away to us. But my question has always been, ever since this story broke, He's got his own budget. Why is he going after the OPP to buy him a van? He's got his own. Take it out of your own money. And why did he try and hide it? Yeah. That's what I don't understand, just for the very, very things that you just said. I mean, they've, they've got the money to do it. They could, they could buy their own van, like you say, and they could trick it out according to their person, you know, uh, you know, to what the OPP would require. And and pay for it himself, or through his own, through the party, or whatever way they wanted to do it. It it just seemed to me that it's it really puts, I think, Mister Ford rightly or wrongly in a bit of a spot because it makes him look like that. You know, if it's either my way or the highway, whether you're on that highway with a tricked out van or whatever it is. And, and listen, if if that's what they wanted to do, and if he's he's got his heart set on having something like this, so he can tootle around, you know, to wherever he's going, uh, that's a decision. We can debate that whether or not it's a practical, you know, use of, of the, the the budget that he's got, etc. But why why be so clandestine about this? Well, I, I, a lot of people would say, you know, I don't know how much time he spends in that van, but. All the other premiers were were you know very happy with a a GMC suburban or or whatever it might have been, but he wanted he wanted this this fancy van and I don't know why his heart was set on that, but I guess he figures he's the premier and he does a lot of travelings and he wanted to be comfortable and, and hey look at I don't begrudge him that because you know they just spend a lot of time on the road sure, but just be up front. But isn't that what he promised? I mean, that's I think that's the the thing that sticks in a lot of people's craw right now. It's it's the fact that he said no, things are going to be different. I mean, and you you covered all this stuff. We talked about it ad nauseum on election night too, uh, when you were in studio here with us. I said, look at this is this is the way things are, and we're going to get rid of this cronyism. We're not going to show favoritism. We're not just going to appoint our friends and give them big salaries. Uh, yeah, he is. That's what he is doing, and and we've seen that happen. Uh, and, and, you know, there's this element of this, obviously, but there have been other ones, and I, I chronicled some of them in the commentary. It's on my blog today. Uh, you know, Jenny Burns, who worked on the campaign, I mean, she's got a nice little gig now for an Ontario Hydro, 197000 bucks a year, not too shabby. Uh, another guy that they've actually hired, which I, this is the one that really sticks with me. I just I, This one blew me away. Uh, Mr. Saint-Jean, who is now in charge of basically finding government spending efficiencies, but they just increased his salary by 67%. I mean, is is that not the ultimate irony? You go find savings and where we can save money. But by the way, I'm going to give you a 67% raise. 
well, don't forget the the one that they just hired, uh, which was by all accounts a part time job, an education advisory. Yeah, but you know, former former uh, you know, candidate. That was Mr. Montgomery. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, and I forget what he's making. One hundred and forty. Hundred and forty, and and the they, previous person who apparently you know was was had that job because the job is has was in the last administration too. The last person got a two hundred and twenty five dollar per diem, and now they're going to give this guy one hundred and forty grand a year. Well, Dave Cook, who, who former education minister in the Ray government, I think held that position one time, and 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 publicly said, "I don't know what the guy's going to do all day." <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to collect one hundred and forty grand. That's what he's going to do all day. But you know, it, but if it's Ottawa or it's Queens Park, you know, we're picking on Queens Park right now, and rightly so. But it's it's it was, same thing in Ottawa. They say they're going to be one. They're going to do things differently. It's going to be open and transparent, and we find out it's just just like the, just like the former government and the government before them, the government before them. They 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 get in power, and you know they. You know, they get behind closed doors, and they, they make the sausages, and they don't want to show people how the sausages are made. Well, it's I, I don't know when the last time you were in the halls of uh, Queen's Park there. I know you spent many, many... Oh, was it? Okay, well, <laughs> it, the, the gravy train's still running. Well, it it, it is, and uh, but if just as an aside, I, I dropped in to see my old friends at the, the Star office, and I went down to watch the scrums. I haven't seen this many reporters covering Queens, Queens Park since uh, since Mike Harris was in power. It, the, it was lined up with cameramen, camera operators, photographers, reporters. So one thing, he's been good for good for journalism. <laughs> Never a dull day. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for this. Interesting story. Certainly not the end of it. We'll uh, stay in touch over the next little while as this develops. Appreciate the time today, though. Thanks, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Richard Brennan, of course, uh, formerly from the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A rather troubling story for those of us who love animals. Uh, the, uh, I guess for the first time, really, in about a century, Ontario's Animal Welfare Agency is no longer investigating and enforcing animal cruelty laws. In a letter uh, at the beginning of the week to our Community Safety Minister, Sylvia Jones, the Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals says it will not sign a new contract with the province after the current one expires in March. Uh, CEO Kate McDonald says, well, the model's just not working. And uh, there's a significant shift in who we are and what we do, uh, which begs the question, who's going to fill the void? Uh, some are suggesting the void's already there and it's not being handled properly. Joining us to talk about this is Camille Labchuk, who is Executive Director of Animal Justice. Uh, Camille, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good to be here, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about the implications of this. There, are, there was a court ruling, I guess, about about the duties of of the SPCA, which I guess has really kind of colored this thing and and had everybody back off. Maybe you could give us a status update as to where we are right now and what may happen because of this decision. Well, that's right. So this was a case. It was a constitutional challenge to the fact that the OSPCA is a private charity yet it has police powers and it can enforce laws. And if you think about it, Bill, there's no other area of the law where that's allowed. Uh, public agencies like police officers or government ministries do the law enforcement, not private charities. Mm-hmm. So this case really got to the heart of whether that's still appropriate. And the court said, no, that's actually an unconstitutional system. Uh, animal justice intervened in that case, and we actually supported that outcome. 
And it's being appealed now to the Ontario Court of Appeal, the government's appealing. So we'll see where it actually goes. But uh, I think it was the catalyst for taking a new look at the system and saying, is it really appropriate in 2019 for a charity that has to raise its own funds to be doing this work? There's another element to this, too, and, and I'm glad you outlined it in that fashion. Uh, because obviously the government's the one that's appealing this, not the SPCA, uh, which indicates to me that they, they don't want this tossed onto their lap. I It's hard to say because the government hasn't given too much indication of what they think of the situation or what they might do. But, uh, I mean, in general, I think it's fair to say that Ontarians care deeply about animal protection, and the government just can't ignore that. So we're going to be working with the SPCA. We're going to be pressuring the government to come up with a new publicly funded system that uh, does a better job for animals and puts them first. Well, and let's talk about, we will get into that in just a couple of seconds, but when I talk about the status quo, uh, I've I've talked to some people that are concerned about this and actually that have some knowledge of what goes on with uh, daily operations at the SPCA that said, look, a lot of this enforcement they haven't been doing anyway since this court case was even up there because they just figured, hey, this is not worth our while and it's not worth the hassle anymore. Is is there a shortage? Is there a void right now because of uh, of that status and because of this court case? Well, I think so that there's always been a void. If you look at the funding and the resources that the SPCA has to do this work, frankly, it's just it's really just pennies. It doesn't amount to much at all. So they get about five point seven five million dollars from the government annually to do law enforcement, and that's supposed to be for the entire province of Ontario. And if you look at the policing budget for the province, we spend four point four billion dollars on policing. And 5.75 is 0.001% of that. So it, it just doesn't even come close to doing a good enough job of protecting all the hundreds of millions of animals in the province of Ontario. So I think that it's very fair to say that policing of animal welfare issues has been lacking for quite some time, whether that's due to internal problems at the OSCA or simply budgetary ones is another question. But it's clear to many, many people that this model just isn't working, including the OSPCA. Well, and I've heard anecdotally, too, from uh, some people that have been involved, in, even at the local level, but I've had some knowledge of dealing with uh, some of the folks that work at the Toronto branches as well. Uh, first of all, the, you're right, they're understaffed. They're poorly paid. Uh, and, and because of the understaffing, oftentimes these guys are, and women are going out into the field all by themselves. Well, depending on what you're dealing with there, that can be a rather dangerous situation. Oh, absolutely. And there was a pretty scathing report by Dr. Kendra Coulter of Brock University, I think two summers ago, where she looked at these issues and concluded that it's, you know, frankly a miracle that nobody's been killed on the job yet. I, I know police officers, sorry, OSPCA officers who have been injured, who have been threatened. Um, unlike regular police, they don't have firearms. They don't have access to police databases to know if uh, somebody who's a suspect might have a firearm on their property. So it's a very dangerous situation. And a lot of people are saying, why don't we give this type of work to the police and let the OSCCA play a supportive role and really use their strengths in animal care rather than doing the investigative work that the police know best? Well, I don't know if that's going to work out because I know that they've they've broached that subject in the past, haven't they, Camille? And the OPP has basically said, look, animal control is, is not a core function of policing. In other words, they, I don't think they want this. Well, I actually think that it would make a lot of sense, <clears throat> excuse me, for the OPP or some other police agency to be set up to take on this work. Uh, a lot of what the OSCC has to do is, is stuff that doesn't really go to the core of their expertise. So investigating, collecting evidence, dealing with charter issues, and trying to protect suspects' rights, bringing a case to court, that's not something that SCCAs are necessarily best placed to do, but it is something that the police know how to do. And actually the police, 
despite the existence of the OSCCA, the police have always retained the ability to do these, these cases, and, and sometimes they actually do. So I don't think it would be that radical of a shift to give this over to a police force of some type, whether it be the OPP or local police agencies, and then bring in the OSCCA to help with animal seizure, to help with veterinary uh, care, to help collect forensic evidence, and do the things that they know how to do best. Well, and there's, there, there are models out there, I guess, that you could use as at least a template for this, too. Uh, for instance, I know that, let's, let's use a, a, a typical example, somebody in police services. If there's a, a, a call but somebody in distress and there are possible mental health issues, I, what they do here in Hamilton, for instance, Camille, is, is they have a caseworker that goes out there, somebody who's trained in dealing with those situations with mental health, so that that person can be the liaison and, and guide the officers as to how they can handle this situation. Uh, if you had police doing the enforcement under the supervision of SPCA, that sounds like a win-win situation. Exactly, exactly. I think that's the kind of innovative thinking that we need. And as you point out, it's not really that different from what's already being done in a whole bunch of different areas. The American SPCA in New York, they used to do all the law enforcement in that state. And, and again, they're a private charity. And uh, they came to a similar conclusion a few years ago that the system wasn't working. So they started partnering with the NYPD in the same way that we're now talking about with the OSCA. And they've been finding that that model has worked really, really well. So that's not to say it will be easy. Uh, both sides put in a lot of resources and there's a pilot program and they've sorted out all the kinks, but it's now gotten to this workable situation. So there's no reason we can't do the same for animals in Ontario. It would add, uh, I think, a little more power to, to the work that they're doing, too. I, wouldn't you think, Camille? I mean, I, I understand that under the current situation, which has now been tossed out by the courts, uh, those, those officers from the OSPCA, of course, uh, have uh, the power to enforce both provincial and criminal code uh, cruelty laws. Uh, but as you say, they're not armed. They don't seem to have the wherewithal. A police officer shows up, and I think there's a different attitude with everybody involved. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. I think that the, the idea of being police rather than just a humane protection officer is a powerful thing in people's minds. And it would certainly be a safer situation for the officers who are deployed because they're trained to deal with those really dangerous situations. They have the tools they need to deal with people who might be irate. Um, you know, I can tell you from speaking with OSBCA officers, they've been in some terrible situations where they show up and someone is very, very angry and violent and threatening to them, and they just don't have the tools to deal with that. But the police do. Is, is this time, since it looks as if we're going to shape a different protocol here, is it time to have a discussion, too, about, about the laws themselves, the criminal code laws to do with animal cruelty? Oh, absolutely. Our animal protection laws in this province and this country are, frankly, stuck in the last century. Actually, two centuries ago. They're stuck in the 1800s. And we urgently need an overhaul of the federal criminal code and those protections. But if we're talking about provincial issues here, you know, the entire government is going to have to respond to this at some point. It's too early to say what they're going to do. Uh, but they're going to have to come up with some new model because Ontarians just don't stand a system where there's, there's no, nothing in place. So if they're doing that already, we're going to say it's time to look at the regulations as well and the provincial laws. Uh, let me just give you an example. Ontario is the only province in the country where zoos are licensed. I can open up a dangerous zoo in my backyard filled with all kinds of dangerous large wild animals without a permit. But if I want to build a patio in my backyard, I need a permit for that. Yeah. So you know, what gives? 
Well, and and there's a. I don't think you and I have had this discussion in the past too. That I've, I've got some serious concerns uh, about penalties and about just how much uh, you know t- there are in some of these laws. Uh, that, that we've heard about some heinous activity with people that have abused animals in in some of the most horrific ways, and they basically get a slap on the wrist. And and I think there's got to be a, I think a discussion about exactly what's going on, uh, and and making something worthwhile so that people understand the severity of what they're actually doing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I would point to one thing in particular is that oftentimes when it comes to businesses that sort of use animals to profit, what they might get as a penalty for animal abuse is just a fine. And to them, a fine is frankly built just the cost of doing business. They pay it, they move on, they do what they want to do anyway, and they continue their abusive business model. And I think that's a situation where we need to actually ban individuals from ever owning animals in the future and protecting any future animals from coming into contact with those people. Well, and I understand that's where part of the debate is going, and and people can get a little bit silly when they start going on opposite sides of of this issue. Uh, and and I know in past discussions that that we've had with uh, people from the from the legal world that, for instance, I mean, as far as the law is concerned, in most cases they look at animals as property, uh, not as living things, and and. And I'm not suggesting we go to the other end and give them all the rights of, of humans, because that's the first thing people say is, "Oh, come on, what do you want them to?" Do? No, but there's got to be there's got to be some middle ground here. Oh, absolutely! I think you've hit the nail on the head as far as something that a lot of people are thinking about. The idea of treating animals as property, just like our tables and chairs and like a toaster, it just doesn't feel right to people. We all intuitively know that there's something so much more than that. Anyone who lives with a cat or a dog or a hamster or a rabbit. We know that they feel pain, they can suffer, they have good moods, they have bad moods. They really are just like us in all the ways that matter and all the ways that we justify treating humans well. So, you know, moving completely away from property, that's one question. But affording them some sort of middle ground and enhanced status, I think is something that almost everyone can get behind. If you look at the polls, 90% plus of people say that they want stronger animal cruelty laws this this isn't an issue that really divides people along any particular party lines or left-right spectrum. It's something that a lot of people can agree on. Well, because we've seen some examples, and you've talked about this on the program in the past, obviously, Camille, but uh, you know, some of these parks, uh, zoos, as you said, uh, you know, there's, there's a number of different aspects to this. Uh, some, some people classify them as work animals. I'm not so sure if it's really work that they're doing. It's, it's, it's indentured uh, work that, that they're, they're forced to do. Uh, and and you want to know that there are going to be some parameters set up like this, and just as we would for anybody else, a human being or an animal, uh, uh, you know, about overexerting themselves. And we've seen examples of that, and I know we've talked about some some of those in the past as well. That this, if we're going to relook at this, and if we're going to say, okay, fine, as of the end of this month, uh, it's time for a new model. I, I hope that the government of the day, which will be obviously Minister Jones in this particular case. Uh, which say let's let's include this too. Let's talk about this and and let's do a a, a refresh hit, I guess, on the on the whole process. Yeah, we'll definitely be pushing for that, and a lot of stakeholders and people from the animal protection community, I know, will be as well. Anyone out there who's listening, I encourage you to contact your MPP and let them know that this is an issue you care about because politicians respond to what people want. But you know, as far as situations go, we're, we're discussing. I think we talked about this before, Bill. Um, animals used in farming right now. People are often shocked to learn that there aren't any regulations specific to govern what happens on farms. There's general animal cruelty regulations and uh, and standards, but there's often exemptions for farming, and there's no specific rules about how much space, uh, socialization requirements, what type of family contact animals get to have. 
There's nothing like that. And that's just, you know, frankly, most of the animals that are used in society are on farms because we kill 800 million of them a year in Canada. And the idea of them just having no regulations whatsoever to protect them is ludicrous in 2019. You make a very valid point, though. Uh, society is changing, and I think we've seen this uh, just in, in, in people's actions, I guess, not just in, in what they're saying. But, uh, you know, we've seen, uh, for instance, a number of these water parks actually starting to close down now because the attendance just isn't there. People, I think, are on to this and just saying, look, at, uh, animals deserve better treatment. That's all there is to it. Uh, and the farm thing you've talked about in the past, the exemptions that are in place. And I understand people have to make a living, et cetera, but you also have to understand that that's a living being. Uh, that has to be respected and and and, and nurtured in min, in many ways too. And uh, some people just don't see have that mindset. So I, I I see I see things turning right now. Uh, the problem is is usually the political will to get things done is the last piece of that puzzle, and that hasn't happened yet. No, that's right. Most of them really does depend on all of us. We need to demand the change. We need to be the driving force behind that change. We can't just expect politicians to do something without being asked to do it first. And I think that marine parks are a really good example, Bill. Uh, We've seen just in the last six, seven years, just a massive movement away from keeping aquariums and whales and dolphins and other mammals in captivity. There's a bill right now in the House of Commons that's getting very, very close to passing. It's spent nearly four years working its way through the system. But it's Bill S203, which would actually ban keeping whales and dolphins in captivity. So places like Marineland, they wouldn't be able to breed any more whales. They wouldn't be able to capture any more of these whales from the wild and rip them apart from their families and then put them in tiny tanks. And the reason it's getting so close to passing, Bill, is because there's so much support for it. People are really rising up and demanding that this passes because it's something that society's ready for. So we're seeing an amazing shift in people's attitudes and what they're willing to ask and push for, and I think that's only going to grow. Hope so, uh, and uh, this will be a good first step. We'll see how the provincial government here in Ontario handles this stuff. Camille, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Always good to be here. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Camille Labchuk, of course, Executive Director of Animal Justice. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.